surprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of Star Brewing amazed that the focus remains the focal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. This is the company and the brand that I trust with my coffee. I love this stuff so much, specifically the coffee with lion's mane and chaga. Man, mushroom coffee. Who would have thought that it would make such a difference? It really does because Four Sigmatic takes the adaptogens and adaptogens, adaptogens, there it is, along with mushrooms and mixes it with the coffee. It's this wonderful blend and the lion's mane and the chaga really does the trick. I mean, you got to be honest with you, the chaga, first of all, Buddhist monks have been using this for years to help with meditation. And in these times, I don't know about your home life. My home life is crazier than it's ever been with the self-quarantine and homeschooling and all of that and anything that can help me relax while at the same time providing me a little bit of boost that I need. That's a hard thing to do to get both those things at the same time. And that's exactly what Four Sigmatic with Lion's Mane and Chaga does for me. I love this stuff. I have it every single day. And I think if you give it a try, you'll love it too. So, What's the call to action? It's very simple. You go to foursigmatic.com slash rambling runner, or just use code rambling runner at checkout to save some cash, man. 15% off of your purchase. That is foursigmatic, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com with code rambling runner for 15% off. So today's episode is with Matt Fitzgerald. Matt is one of the most widely recognized people in uh, running media of all sorts. And a couple of years ago, uh, he was stationed with the NAS Elite Hoka One One team uh, with Ben Rosario in that group. And he was able to literally live his and our collective dreams of being able to train as an elite professional runner at an advanced age for him. He was in his middle 40s and he was able to really see what he could do in an elite stage. And it was, in the time, one of the most fascinating things to follow. He was posting and blogging about it every single day. I loved reading that blog. Well, guess what? Now the book that highlights this entire process is out. It's called Running the Dream. It is an absolutely phenomenal book. I couldn't wait to read it. Uh, as with every book that I that I consume, I shouldn't say read it. I always use Audible. I love I love Audible, and um, you know this was on there right now. He actually had a really good narrator for that book, and it's fantastic. I absolutely loved it. I also talked to him a day after he ran the Rambling Runner Virtual Marathon, which that that series came to an end. He ran that race. And we'll dive into that as well. I love talking to Matt, all things running, because he is just has a wealth of knowledge about so many things. And as I mentioned in this interview, he's at this rare point where he is not only kind of living the amateur runner's dream, but also is an extremely good runner. <laughs> I mean, he, he's a very, very good runner. And it's hard to kind of be in both of those camps at the same time. And he does a really good job of it. And he's also the author of so many books that I love, especially Iron War, my favorite sports book of all time. I can't recommend that one strongly enough, but Running the Dream is also excellent. And I advise you to go pick it up wherever you happen to get books or audiobooks. So here's my conversation with Matt Fitzgerald. Hello, Matt, and welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. It's been too long, Matt. Oh, it's so it's so, I'm so glad to have you back. You are absolutely one of my favorite authors. I have so many of your books. I was telling you before, like I love the book, but that's like on repeat now. Every time I talk to you, like I'm saying, Lizzie's saying some version of that about <laughs> one or more of your books, and I can't wait to get into a book that was just released, one that was highly anticipated by the running public, uh, running the dream. Before we get into it, you just completed the Rambling Runner Virtual Marathon this weekend. I think you're the most high profile marathon or maybe you and kate landau were the two people that people knew best going into this weekend how did it go for you uh it went well i mean first of all thank you for creating the opportunity um i honestly it would be difficult for me to express how much it, it meant to me um because i you know i i'm not sure if i got covid19 but i got really sick right around the time that the whole thing blew up um never been so sick for so long and, uh, you know, it was, it, it was, a 
it was a trial and you know as an athlete of course you know you're hemorrhaging fitness in that process um and when i came out the other side of it you know i needed something to hold on to you know kind of just a you know a, a bridge back to i guess where i felt i was before um and the rambling runner virtual marathon was it i had i had committed to the whole series but i was sick for the 5k sick for the 10k wasn't ready for the half and it was a little bit crazy even to attempt the uh the marathon i had five and a half weeks from my first post illness run to the thing itself but it, it absolutely did the trick like i needed something kind of a, a little crazy and I knew it wasn't going to be, I wasn't going to be, you know, 100% physically ready for it, but that, that didn't matter. I, I just, I, I needed the motivation and I was curious about the challenge. Um, and it, it went great. I think you were got top three men in the virtual uh, marathon standings. We, we won't know till tomorrow till all the stuff is uploaded, but you did really well, man. I was really impressed. So was that the shortest lead up you've ever had to a marathon? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I've never run a marathon like on a bar bet, you know, just like, you know, the next morning, just, hey, you know, Matt, I'm doing this marathon tomorrow. I'll bet you can't. Come on. Um, you can't do that. You're not doing the Dean Carnassus? No, no, I'm not that guy. You know, I'm, you know, I, uh, you know, it, it's a little bit, well, like I said, it, it, I knew it was going to be a challenge and, you know, because I am, I am injury prone. Um, and, you know, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. So it, it was a, a pretty big ask. But, you know, I'm, I've, you know, I'm experienced. I've been running for a long time. Um, you know, this was, I don't, I don't really count marathons, but it was somewhere around my 50th. If you, if you count events like this one, because I'm the guy who I've actually run solo time trial marathons before, even without like the, the virtual race platform but yeah it was just it was super compressed um but that's what made it fun you know I, i've run so many and this it just made it i felt like i was fighting with one arm tied behind my back but that's what made it interesting for me i knew i would learn stuff that i could you know because i do coach stuff that i could apply as a coach um you know what is the limit how much can you accelerate the process of of gaining fitness and you, know, you might think when you take on a challenge like that, that it's all about just like grinding it out, but it's really not. It, it, the main thing is smart decision-making. You have to be smart. Like it, it might be stupid in its very premise to attempt such a thing, but once you've committed to it, you have to be smart. And that that's what I wanted to try. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to come out the other side and feel like, you know what? I, I could not have made uh, better decisions along the way. Yeah, you bring up an interesting point. You say, all right, we have five and a half weeks <laughs> to make this happen. At that point, it's almost like, all right, like the worst thing you can do is to try to squash three months worth of work into five weeks. You almost have to like embrace the fact that, you know, you're going to be undertrained and you might as well be fresh as opposed to like undertrained and exhausted. Yes, though. I mean, absolutely, though. I, I did. I did want to do a certain amount of squashing because. You know, you know, the standard for, you know, marathon training is a fairly leisurely pace of building fitness. And you do that to minimize risk. You know, running is tough on the body. Marathon training is, is hard on the body. So when, when everything is going well, you know, when you can have things the way you, you would want them, you, you don't hurry the process. You don't build fitness at the fastest rate you think you might be able to get away with. But there are circumstances when athletes do have to cram. Um, you know, I think when I, I picked up my, my virus was in Atlanta. I was out there for the – I was spectating uh, slash working for the Olympic trials marathon, and then I ran uh, the Atlanta marathon the next day. Like, well, imagine if you're one of the participants in the Olympic trials marathon, and you get sick, uh, you know, eight weeks out. Well, what are you going to do? They're not going to delay. They're not going to push back the date of the Olympic trials marathon just because one qualifier gets sick, right? You know, when you come out the other side of it, you may have to cram. Um, so there are circumstances when you have to take on a little bit more risk than you would prefer to. 
Um, and so that's what I was trying to do. I think y- you can compress it, but only to a degree. I, you know, I wrote a blog post about this and, you know, I made an analogy with cramming for tests, like in high school and college. And, you know, the brain is so plastic that you really can, like if you're smart enough or you're good, you're good at information retention. I mean, there are people out there who can learn a semester's worth of material in 10 days. Like the body does not adapt on that same time scale. Nevertheless, like you can, you can hurry the process a little bit. And that's sort of what I wanted to learn about. I'm familiar with the, the scientific literature on the subject, but I just wanted, a, you know, as an experiment, a subjective experiment of one, I just wanted to, to test it, you know, to see what I could get away with and what I couldn't. Yeah. And it's obviously so much different depending on the person doing it. Right. So you're someone who, again, as you mentioned earlier, you've done dozens of marathons. So, it, you know, being able to like, for you, cramming it in is different because your body's like, oh, we're doing this again. Oh, all right. <laughs> like we've been, we've been down this road before, as opposed to say, say someone like me, it's like, I'm cramming it in. It's like, what, what are we, what are we getting ready for exactly here? I'm not quite sure. Um, so I think you get that part in it too. It's almost, you see this all the time. People, you know, who are kind of on the other end of the athletic spectrum, you know, like people who are getting back into say weightlifting, right? Maybe they were like big into weightlifting a decade ago, they get into it and they're like, oh, wow, this came back really fast because just the body has memory like that as opposed to someone who who might have the exact same body proportions and be the same age who never did it before might have a completely different experience. Yeah, exactly so. And that's, you know, that's part of what, you know, uh, obviously, you know, some of what I learned is only applicable to myself. I mean, God forbid I should ever go through the same thing again. But, <laughs> but yeah, you know, because, you know, my training had been going really well before I got sick. So, yeah, I had experience, but I also was just, I was a, on a roll. And, you know, you lose a month and you might think if you're, you know, you're so far inside it, you might think, oh, I'm starting from zero. But then, you know, when you kind of, when you get your feet back under you, you do some test runs and you're like, okay, that went okay. I'll try a little more. Then you get a better sense of like, well, how much have I really lost? And I mean, you know, I I ran, I'm 49 years old. I ran 254 yesterday. That's a pretty good time for for a 49 year old. And there's no way I could have done that because, you know, I'm obviously I. I'm a, a better than average runner, but I was never elite even when I was, was half my age. So the reason I was able to do that is because I wasn't really starting from zero. You know, a lot of the fitness I had before I got sick, it was still there. You know, when it's you, you know, you you tend to lose perspective and think, oh, that's it. You know, I'm 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 a beginner again, but I really wasn't, and that's that's part of what I was interested in seeing. You know, after that kind of experience. Um, you know, how much was still there? How much was I benefiting from having been so consistent for weeks, months, and even years bef- before the illness? And that's a topic that affects so many runners and one that's we love to explore on this podcast. And you're able to attack it as an athlete, coach, and someone who's studied and written about the literature kind of from a meta perspective is how much do people lose or what's the the you know the the speed at which they lose fitness when they're either injured or just unable to train you know this is also something that you touch on in running the dream and we'll we'll certainly dive into more of that in a little bit but what has been your experiences in all three elements uh in regards to this question that affects so many yeah you know it, it was interesting speaking of like you know small uh anecdotal quiz I experienced. So my older brother, Josh, he, he ran, uh, the, the same virtual marathon on the same morning. He lives up in Salem, Oregon. And we got into running at the same time. He's, he's three years older than I am. Uh, but the difference between us is that, you know, we both actually got away from it at one point, but I got back into running pretty hardcore in my late twenties and have been, and have been pretty getting after it ever since. Uh, Josh really let himself go, <laughs> you know, and he is three years older and he has, um, you know, he has a couple of kids, he, you know, unlike, I don't really have a normal job. You know, I work from home, you know, I, I can make my life revolve around, you know, keeping fit. Like he, he can't, but in terms of like natural ability level, we're really about the same. So it was interesting cause he's been on this comeback trail. He really wants to qualify for Boston. And, 
And uh, we were both going to run my hometown marathon here in California. It's called the Modesto Marathon, and it got canceled. Um, so I talked him into doing the, the virtual thing. Um, so it was interesting because we're like, again, he's a little older, his circumstances are different, but in terms of natural ability, we're, we're about the same, but he had, he had let the field lie fallow much longer than I had. And it's really interesting to see how much more I'm interesting, but because he's my brother and I love him, not all that altogether pleasing to see much, how much more of a struggle it is for him. Uh, but he's chipped away and chipped away and chipped away at it. And what, what it goes to show you is that the older you get, I think, the more you pay for letting yourself go. And this can sound like devastating news to anyone who has, but, but he has gotten it back by chipping away. I mean, he, he definitely experienced, it was, it was, it was devastating actually that the Modesto marathon got canceled because something clicked, you know, he just didn't get, he was patient and persistent. And the dude was just crushing his workouts in the lead up to yesterday. Unfortunately, he was the victim of, of poor pacing. <laughs> and, uh, he was on, uh, he was on like 310 pace or something, uh, through 23 miles and, the, and then blew up. But it, it, it goes to show you that, um, you know, I, I often thought about this, you know, just as a journalist, I would look at, um, you know, athletes who were, you know, elite Olympians, record setters in their 20s and 30s, and then, you know, retired, and then maybe tried to get back into it or whatever. And it, it just seemed like, often, like, what people, athletes can kind of have a way of like getting old all of a sudden. And it's like, if you at the wrong age, if you have an interruption, it can sort of just catch up with you, you know, what I mean, like, if you're, if you're consistent, and you just you if you're like a Joan Benoit type and you just keep doing the best you can for whatever age you are, you can do amazing things, you know, at into your forties and fifties. But it's when there's like an interruption at the, when you're just a little bit too late, that's like, it all catches up to you and you, you try to come back after it and you're like, Ooh, I'm old now. <laughs> what, ha what happened there? And I was I was really worried that like my illness was going to be that thing for me because I, I was aging well, as an athlete. Um, but I, you know, I think yesterday is evidence that that was mostly irrational, but, but then you have folks like, like my brother who let himself go much further for much longer and he can get it back too. It just, it's, it's a, it's a longer, harder road. Right. It's not that it's gone. It's just harder to find. And that that's, it's funny. You, you, you've talked to these really experienced coaches who've been doing it for decades and shoot, you're one of them. You know, it's it's funny hearing those kinds of stories. Those are the ones that get me so jazzed because it's, it's at the same time, it's aspirational and yet it feels like it's out of reach. And, you know, and that's a paradoxical statement because you have this, this idea of like, okay, it's that inborn genetics. It doesn't go away. It's still in there. It, it's just like all of a sudden it's more like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Like, how do you get in there and get it? Uh, but it's still there. So part of you is like, all right, well, if I don't have the genetics, what does that say for me? But the other part is that like, all right, but maybe I did and I just have to dig deeper. You know, this, um, you know I'm stretching this metaphor to its breaking point, but it, you, know, you know what I'm trying to say? It's in there. It's just a matter of time. And as you put it, patience and persistence uh, to get it back. And it's so interesting because you see people Shoot, I think it's so funny. You usually don't you usually don't see elites who do this. It's more of like these people who are hobby joggers and then all of a sudden catapulted to the sub elite level is kind of that that the more traditional um comeback story theme. But someone like even Roberta Groner, who took significant time off after college and then all of a sudden is a top ten marathoner as a masters runner, while, you know, the fact that we can pick her out proves the rule that is, you know, she is the exception, not the rule. It's also like, oh, wow, like, I wonder how often this could happen, which pretty much is kind of the, the whole context behind running the dream. Yes. Yeah. And talk about pivots. That was beautiful. I'm trying. I'm trying, Maddie. I've been thinking about it all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, shoot. Yeah. I mean, but thematically, yes, it's, it's, that's, uh, that's a, a perfect pivot, you know. I mean, quite honestly, another part of the reason I, I did the whole, you know, virtual marathon challenge 
is to inspire other people. Like I, I, I like to just, you know, make a guinea pig of myself. Uh, and then, you know, if it goes well, <laughs> you know, that, uh, inspire other people just by, uh, setting a kind of example, showing what's possible. Because again, like I'm, I'm not, I mean, you can be inspired by the Meb Kaflezgis of the world because they're just awesome, you know, um, and they do awesome things and, and they just fire you up if you're a fan of the sport. But, you know, I think people like me can do it as well. And I, I, I get it. Like I'm, I'm faster than, than a mid pack runner, but I don't, I think everyone knows I'm, that's not my category. I'm not in Meb's category. I'm just a guy out there. I'm a hobby jogger. <laughs> I'm a front of the pack hobby jogger. And I do stuff, you know, partly because just out of my own passion for the sport, but, but partly to, uh, you know, both edify and inspire other runners and, and running the dream. My new book is really, that's like case in point right there. Yeah. See your, your talent level is like right at the edge of acceptable for taking on challenges like this, because you are, you know, someone who really excelled at various points in your high school career. And, and someone wants to learn more about that. We recorded a podcast just under a year and a half ago where we touched on a lot of this stuff. We don't have to dive into it now, but you know, you've run really well at a lot of distances, you know, basically on par with like the elite, like the best females in the world. Uh, at various distances and you you know ran with some of the best females in the in the world uh in this book in fact and you've had you know so you're at that point of like obviously you're not an elite male runner but you're just within that realm of like all right i can still relate to this guy right it's like just below that um which is kind of like an interesting spot to be you know where you can be someone who can who can literally run with anybody in the world, but at the same time, be relatable to the masses, which is kind of a kind of a cool trick. And obviously, it's not something that you were, you know, it's not like you set out with that goal in mind. It's just kind of how it worked out. Uh, but it does it does kind of work for everybody. Now, with this book in particular, especially considering the blogging that you did while you were with uh, Hoka One One in preparation for the Chicago Marathon for several months, um, you know, this book is interesting because it's basically an extended take on these almost daily blog posts you were putting out while you were in the midst of this. Have you ever had your core audience more excited and anticipating a book launch than this one? No, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I've written all too many books and most of them, you know, nobody knows they're coming before they come. Right. You know, that's uh uh, so this one, yeah, was was different uh, because, you know, for those who don't even know what we're talking about, uh, I took it upon myself to um, just pursue the fantasy that I think a lot of runners might have at some point if you if you really fall in love with the sports, just to wonder how could I be if I if I were able to really like center my life on this sport for a period of time and like om almost live like a pro. So at the age of 46, uh, three years ago, uh, I uh, picked up stakes. My wife and our little pooch and I uh, relocated for the summer from our home in, in Northern California to Flagstaff. Um, we lived with Matt Yano, who was a member of Northern Arizona Elite at the time. And I just lived the life of a professional runner for 13 weeks. Uh, and uh, yes, blogged about my experience, uh, daily, uh, as I went through it and yeah, it, it got some traction because I think, you know, because I'm not the only one <laughs> who had, you know, I was living the fantasy, but yeah, I, I, you know, the whole point was I was doing it for everyone else who's, who's, who can't, <laughs> you know, so I got to experience it for myself, but that wasn't enough. I never would have done it if I weren't, you know, trying to share the journey and inspire other people. So yeah, like I said, you know, the, my blog got some traction. Of course, Northern Arizona elite is they're famous for, you know, just connecting with the broader running community. So I had their help. Uh, you know, I, you know, Ben Rosario, the coach of the team was, uh, you know, doing 
podcast interviews with me uh, as I went along, that sort of thing. Uh, social media, I was ribbing, you know, trading jockish humor back and forth on Twitter and so forth with Scott Fobble and the rest of the gang. So that raised the profile of the whole thing as well. So yeah, like uh, people, and then it took a while because I couldn't make the book not suck. <laughs> I, I came back home <laughs> afterwards, you know, got down to the business of writing it for real. And it's so funny because I knew I had a great story to tell, but uh, it just took a while to to get it to work. And that's why it took almost three years for the actual book to appear, you know, after the experience itself. Yeah. Did you have to get to the point where you'd have to look at all those blog posts and all those words you've already written, just say, I have to start from scratch. I can't use any of this. Or were you able to kind of build off the momentum you'd already created? It, it was almost the opposite problem, you know, because I, I, I didn't have really a plan, you know, because it, it, it's a mistake. You know, I, I've been writing even longer than I've been running. So I know that it's a mistake to decide to think you know exactly what the story is going to be before you even lived the experience you're going to be writing about. So I had, you know, kind of a framework in mind, but I, I just wanted to just be there uh, to live the experience and then decide, you know, what form the book should, should take. But yes, I was keeping a journal the whole time I was there and, and the blog was like a condensed version of the journal. And I hadn't been there too long before I realized you know what, like that, the diary format could really work for this because almost every runner keeps a, a training journal, right? Uh, and, and so it's, it's relatable. Um, I ended up, all the chapters, they're a countdown to the Chicago Marathon. Uh, so, you know, chapter one is titled, literally titled 93 Days to Chicago and, and, on, and on from there. So that, I think, was, it was the right call. But the mistake I made was to try, you know, because every day was just like dreamlike for me. Just, it was a fantasy life. And when I went to actually turn it into a book, it just, it became bloated because I didn't want to leave anything out. And I, I needed to, it took me all too long to become a little, to put myself in the reader's shoes and understand, uh, that just because every day was incredibly interesting to me doesn't mean that every day was would be in, equally in, interesting to, to someone else. So eventually I got to a point where I'm like, well, there's no reason the journal has to be uh, exhaustive, you know, to include every single day of the 93 days I, I was there. So it was when I made the decision decision to just jettison, you know, the, the quote unquote least interesting days. And again, they were all interesting to me, but that's when it, it, the manuscript literally shrunk by 30%. Like it was a hundred thousand words. It shrunk down to 70,000, um, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually, I mean, you've read it. It's not, it's not a huge book. A lot of people are reading it in one or one or two days. Um, so that was, that was the key. That was the key. Uh, it's, it just, the whole thing became a lot more taut um, and leaner. Uh, and I think the story pulls, I hope, well, but the feedback I'm getting is that the, re the story pulls readers along in a way that the early versions of the manuscript just didn't because I wanted to, I couldn't bear to leave anything out. Well, you definitely did a good job of that for sure. With that said, I want, I want some of that director's cut action. I want the full hundred thousand <laughs> words. I want basically the Bill, the Bill Simmons version of this book you know, his, his massive 15,000 word columns. Like I want, that's what I was looking at. I love this book. I'm, I'm saying this tongue in cheek because I just couldn't get enough of it. So for me, it's like, Hey, you want to put out more words on this topic? Feel free, my man. I'll take every word I can get. I, I tell you what, like, seriously, I mean, there, there was some, there was some material I cut that, that hurt physically hurt to cut out, you know? Uh, but you know, you, you know, my dad's a writer too. I, I got both, you know, he, uh, both running and writing from from him uh, actually and and he calls this stuff and it's just something that every writer goes through he calls them little darlings it's like the the stuff you put in a book that you become attached to because you put it in the book and then it really needs to come back out but you you have that attachment to it you're, to your little darlings and uh it's one of those things that's hard until it's easy like like once you make the decision you just start hacking and you're and like what, what you couldn't bear to do starts to feel good 
and that's exactly what happened to me. Like I couldn't, couldn't bear to cut some of this stuff, but then I'm like, Oh no, it's right. And uh, then I, then I got into it. Well, I love the title running the dream because this literally is every, you know, shoot, man, every athlete's dream to do some version of this in the sport that they love. Um, and it's, it's just so interesting because it, it, at, at, at the same time, you're able to capitalize on, okay, what can I do now? While at the same time, it's almost like you're taking a time machine backwards. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you do talk about the past. You do talk about how you have been in the past, different races where you didn't quite, you know, maybe live up to the potential that, that you knew you had for one reason or another. And here you are trying to get this time, you know, this time that you, you know, whisper to yourself at first before blurting it out with Sarah Crouch's help later in the book, later in the, <laughs> you know, in your time there of, you know, breaking, um, you know, it was a 240. And it's so interesting, you know, I think we've all been there. We've all done these what ifs, just like everyone out there is like, what if I wrote a book or what if I started this company or, you know, things like that. And, you know, you actually got in the weeds and did it. And it really is, it's just such an interesting concept. And so many people aren't, aren't able to pull it off. So with that being said, you did something that you knew ahead of time you were going to write about and were writing about in the moment. So what was this like for you mentally and emotionally in terms of being present versus getting too meta about the process in the moment, knowing that you were capturing it for posterity? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because um, you might think that, and I, I think I, I probably had the same thought before I, I landed in Flagstaff, that it would be a tough balance uh, because I really needed to do both. I needed to be present, but I also needed to document. And, you know, you know, the whole cliche about someone who, you know, visits uh, an historical site and they're so busy taking photographs that, you know, when they leave, they don't actually remember the experience of being there. Uh, but they've got all these photographs that don't mean as much. Um, so I didn't want to make that mistake, but also I didn't want to err on the other side either and, and be so present that I wasn't documenting it. And it just sort of worked out. It's hard to say, like, uh, you know, I just, I sort of, I, I became my own like walking organic, uh, video and audio recorder. And I remember Ben Bruce, uh, you know, a team, a team member remarking there were only a, a handful, I think of members of the team paid any attention to my blog while I was doing it. Uh, um, and, but, but Ben Bruce was one of them who would at least read some of my blog articles. I mean, because I was writing about them, right? So, I mean, right. people, some people might want to know, <laughs> what are you saying about me? But I remember him remarking, it, it's like, that's exactly what I said. Because I worried about the opposite. People would say, you know, this is inaccurate. You're like, you're a hack. But um, but I think I, I got to be, you know, I was there long enough that I was able to get into a rhythm of living the experience, but also just some some tool or instrument in, in the back of my mind was very actively documenting. Um, and, and, and oftentimes, you know, as soon as, you know, I would do like a, a, a run with the team every morning or I would, I don't know, I would have some experience that I knew was worth writing about. Well, as soon as I got back to Matt Yano's place, I would get it down on paper. So a lot of the conversations that you see in the book, I mean, they're very, very close to verbatim because they were, you know, it was the next best thing to capturing them in real time was with the aid of electronics. See, I'm like, I'm, I'm picturing you as like this. This is so like, it's like almost like, like Jane Goodall out like in the, in the, in the forest <laughs> somewhere, you know, like capturing right. everything she can. Um, and so you, you know, first of all, let me just tell all the people who are listening right now. We're not going to go step by step. Read the book yourself. <laughs> I've already read the book. Uh, it's great. You should go buy it right now. In fact, you have, you got a great, um, a great narrator for the audio book. That's how I consume all of my books these days is through audio books. And you got a great narrator. So good job with that. Um, that, that can make and make or break some of these books, you know, either fortunately or unfortunately. Um, so I'm not going to touch on every single thing that you did in the book because that just wouldn't be fair to you. Um, but just a couple things because there are one of the things that stood out to me, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this to see if, it, if this is how you're, how you took it was that 
there wasn't much that you experienced there that you didn't already know in some form or fashion. It was just a matter of putting it all together and just a matter of, you know, doing it versus knowing it. Is that is that how you viewed it after the fact? Yeah. I mean, I mean there were there were definitely surprises, um but they weren't I mean, I guess that's the nature of a surprise. They weren't where I was looking for them because you can sort of like uh, there's the whole thing with known unknowns and unknown unknowns and we won't go down that road but yeah i mean it's like you know before you travel somewhere you've never been before like you kind of have your ideas about what it's going to be like and then you go there and sometimes you know it fulfills expectations but it's still worth doing you know what i mean because the experience itself is different from you know, the expectations. So yeah, there there was an element of that. I mean, that's why I was doing it. Like, you know, I, I knew that if I went through the experience, it would be transformative. And to a large extent, it was exactly that. It was exactly what I, I signed up for. Um, but you know, the, there were, you know, some of the specifics were, um, you know, just, uh, for example, like, you know, I, I improved, as an athlete, you know, my fitness and performance improved just shockingly rapidly in, in, in the 13 weeks out there, especially considering my age and, and just how long I'd been in, in the sport. And I, it was, it really did blow away my expectations and you, you can make a kind of pie chart. Okay. Well, what were the factors? There were so many, you know, there was, you know, Ben Rosario's coaching, there was uh, seven, being at 7,000 feet of altitude. There were dietary tweaks that were largely inspired by Matt Yano, the guy I, I lived with there who just had a, an immaculate diet that it was hard to live up to. You know, all these little factors, the physical therapy, the, you know, the weekly massage therapy, uh, X, Y, Z, up and down the line. Like a lot of things changed. Um, but, but like one thing that I absolutely believe was, was a, a major factor in my improvement was the beauty of the environment like just i mean you've read the book again like you know like flagstaff is almost like a character in the book i I think there's like based on the on the feedback i'm getting from from early readers is that there's like a real strong sense of place um so even people who've never been to flagstaff they feel like they have a good sense of why it's such a mecca uh for runners and you know i had conversations about this you know with some of the some of the folks there and they all agreed. Oh yeah. It's like, it's, it's intangible. It's hard to explain. Maybe a scientist be, might dis- be dismissive of it, but just, just, you know, being there in that environment and also, you know, the team dynamic to a certain degree, also an intangible that was absolutely, uh, you know, I'm certain a, a, a major contributor to just, you know, just the athletic improvement I experienced. And a lot of the stuff you've written about before, I mean, this reminds me of someone building a mosaic of like, all right, like I have all these tiles, like none, none of this stuff, like all these concepts that you just mentioned and you mentioned in the book, none of these were new to you independent of each other, right? Like you were aware of all the potential tiles, but it's just like you're building this mosaic because like you have this this enormous pile of tiles <laughs> it's like, okay, which ones am I actually going to use, right? Which is going to be the, the few that are really going to make this thing pop. And it's interesting how it all came together for you. And, and with the eating was so unique because it, it's talking about a sense of place. I wonder how the eating would have manifested itself if you just happened to live with a different person. So much of this <laughs> was obviously intentional on a lot of ways, but then with living with Matt Yano, who you, you described as eating perfectly just, just a minute ago, I, I wonder how much like that, that in of itself, just him being the person that you interacted with most on the team had an impact on you as opposed to say, if you lived with Scott Fobble or Scott Smith, or, you know, if, if say, shoot, say James McCurdy happened to move there two years earlier and you stayed with him the whole time. Um, you know, how that would have worked and you know how you how you think it would have impacted you if you had just made that small simple change yeah yeah i mean yeah for sure i mean there's just uh there's accident there's serendipity but i mean you can go down a rabbit hole you know the fact that i lived with matt versus anyone else on the team was certainly 
uh, it made a difference in terms of if I had been someone had someone else as my primary influencer. But the very fact that Matt, of all members of the team, was the one who volunteered to host me and my wife was no accident, you know, because like he's he was the kind of guy who would do that, you know. So that's how I ended up there. You know, my my first vision, you know, when I reached out to Ben Rosario and said, "Hey, I've got this crazy half baked scheme. I I would just want you to let me be a member of your team, even though I'm just some schmuck." <laughs> You know, my my vision, like I just prayed he would say yes. But then my vision was that, you know, Nataki, my wife and I would just rent, you know, like an extended stay hotel type of place. I mean, I wasn't going to just invite myself over to someone's house, you know. Uh, like all I wanted to do was get there and just have the opportunity. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, when Ben and I talked, I said, well, of course, you need to run this by the team. <laughs> And he said, yes, absolutely, I do. And he talked to the team. And then Matt said, well, you know, I've got a couple spare bedrooms. And so he reached out to me. But, you know, it was no accident that, that it was him. And and then, you know, it, that bore out, that was borne out on the ground during my time there. It's just like he very actively mentored me. There's a refrain. There's lots of refrains that come up throughout the book. And one of them is question of the day. Like I, it became kind of a running joke between us because I, you know, I picked his brain like shamelessly because I mean, the dude's like, he's now a 211 marathoner. He was a 212 marathoner then, 61 minute half marathoner. I mean, I've got him. He's a captive audience. <laughs> like he's, he's stuck with me for the summer. So I was just, you know, just like uh, grilling him constantly. And, but he was very eager. Like he would just, no matter what he was doing, he would drop it when I asked him my question of the day. Um, so yeah, uh, it's just, it, it it, there was absolutely accident and serendipity involved, but it's hard to, when you look closer at it, it's like, well, how much, how accidental were, were these accidents? Yeah, I had the, I was fortunate enough to have him on the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast in, uh, in late fall after he ran 211. And what an awesome guy to talk to. And his own story is that, you know, I love his whole like underdog story. Um, which is, which, you know, you touch on it in the book and, and we've talked about him at talk about, Talk about it with him as well. There you go. Um, and you know, it certainly is nice. Now, obviously, the running part is is the paramount part here. And, and you spend a lot of time in the book talking about it, obviously. Another key theme here that you touch on quite often is the injury prevention slash therapy and healing aspect. And that's something that I know for a lot of runners, they just don't know how to approach these two topics. Obviously, they're interrelated, but not always uh, interrelated because if you're doing some of this right, you don't have to do – if you're doing the former right, you don't have to do the latter sometimes. So for you, where were you in regards to injury prevention before you went to Flagstaff? Yeah. So you know, as, as I mentioned at the outset, um, I'm, I am injury prone. Um, and I, I warned Ben Rosario of that. We had a chance to sit down with each other um, on the eve of the California International Marathon. This would have been December 2016, so a few months before the experiment began. And I remember telling him at that, that meeting, uh, like, I will get injured. <laughs> Just be, be ready. And you know, it's not because I'm a, a pessimist. It's just because, you know, I knew myself um, and I knew what I was signing up for. And, and like, he wanted to know, he, he wanted to know, he, he, like any good coach, he's not a dictator. You know, he wanted to understand, he knew how experienced I was. Um, and he wanted to, he wanted a data dump from me he, because, you know, he had nothing else to go by, right. Other than what I could tell him about my experience. So I told him I get injured a lot. Um, and, and I, I let him know that I relied heavily on cross training in order to sort of have it both ways to, um, I wasn't going to lower my competitive ambitions just because I'm brittle, but at the same time I had to, I've always, I've had to learn to accommodate them. So Ben, you know, he, he's not, you know, he's used to more, you know, younger, more durable athletes, but you know, to his credit, he took that in he said, okay, we'll, we'll work with that. We'll, we'll let you cross train. So that that was a huge piece for for me. It's just like not relying completely on running for fitness. As it turned out, once I got to Flagstaff, 
you know, we did, there's so, there's just such a, a crazy abundance of trails there. There are no trails where I live. So I do almost all my running on pavement. And so we did all of our, you know, easy runs on trails. And that seemed to be almost like cross training for me because, you know, I ran more miles there than I have been able to absorb in quite a long time. And I, aside, I did, you know, I did get injured, <laughs> but by and large, I just felt good. Like I, I didn't feel like the training was breaking me down. So that, I guess that was a, a bit of an unexpected uh, thing there. Um, and then, and then, uh, you know, then I just, you know, injury prevention is obviously a huge part of just being a professional runner. And it's hard to even put a label on stuff like, you know, the massage therapy, is that injury prevention? Well, it's more than that, but I, I think it is that too, you know, and, and I was doing everything they did. So, you know, they had team massage therapists and, and they're so, I mean, these folks only work on high level runners, you know, you can just go get a massage anywhere. And, you know, if you just roll the dice, probably the person working on you does, you're the first serious runner they've worked on in months, right? <laughs> so it just is so difference making to have this support system. Uh, and so I, I relied a lot on that. And a lot of it was like injury management or pain management. But, you know, there's a blurry line again between the management and prevention side. So, you know, I, I did get one major injury, but by and large, you know, I, I was on the verge of falling apart the whole time, but, but I, you know, I, you know, I didn't entirely fall apart. And I just think it's because of all those measures. Yeah. That was the part for me that was really the screaming, like obvious point of the book in, in certain regards of like, this is the difference between training with this group versus if Matt was just like, he had a core group of friends back home who were also extremely dedicated, but you know, like that, that would be the differentiation it was like, all right, you get hurt and then what? And you even touch on that. I think in like the second to last chapter of like, Hey, if this had happened, you know, at another point in my life, the, the, the final result would have been far different. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I've had, you know, like most runners who get injured, you know, my experiences with overuse injuries, by and large, you know, just kind of like the the slow onset, something gradually falls apart. <laughs> um, but the major injury I had there was acute. Um, I, I it was the single most epic workout. I mean, I did a handful of truly epic workouts there, and you know the, I mean, the Mount Everest of workouts I've ever attempted as a runner. Um, I got to the very end of, I was literally within sight of the finish when, uh, hip abductor tendon on, on the left side just kind of went spring and it was, uh, I mean, it was just excruciatingly painful, like, you know, just rolling an ankle badly, that type of thing. I was just stopped cold. Um, and my first thought was because I've had my share of experience with pain and injury, it's over. Like I was certain it, it was over. It, it was really bad. Um, but, you know, because of, of the context I was in, I was in a physical therapist's office two hours later. And then on it went from there. And, you know, I, I, I made a comeback. You know, this, this injury occurred a little, little short of halfway through the 13 weeks. And, you know, I, I got back and I just, I could not. And again, I guess I keep painting myself as a pessimist. I, I like, I don't think it was that. Like I just, I was sure it was over just based on experience and it wasn't. And yeah, yeah. If, if the same exact thing had happened and I was, you know, I kind of live in, in the country. Uh, you maybe if you hear California, do you think I'm in San Francisco or LA? I'm not. <laughs> and so I just, you know, the resources just don't, exist where I am, or it's just, it's 10 times more of a pain in the butt to access them. But because they were all right there and there, you know, people cared, it wasn't just, you know, that they knew what they were doing. They cared. Um, that's, you know, part of the, the, the team thing. Um, yeah, it just, it was absolutely difference making. Now, one of the touchstone books for me, not only as an athlete, but as a person is Iron War. It's one of my favorite books of all time, easily my favorite sports book of all time, not just running book. And I, I re-listen to that once or twice a year for years. 
It's just my, my go-to. Um, to anyone who doesn't know about it, it's, it's about Mark Allen and Dave Scott, kind of the, the two legends in the sport of triathlon who, you know, Dave was there right from the beginning and Mark was there shortly thereafter, and they basically dominated the sport for over a decade. And they're exact opposites in every way except for their results. And Dave Scott's the hard driver, man's man, no pain, no gain, alpha male, Mark Allen is the exact opposite in every possible way, including spiritually. Now that you've had the chance to train and live as a professional runner for an extended period of time, if Dave Scott's one end of the range, Mark Allen's the other end of the range, where do you fall within that range? Dang. Well, that is, uh, yeah, you, you caught me on my back foot with that, that question. I, dang. I don't know. I guess, um, I guess, I, well, now that I think about it, uh, I, I skew a l- little bit more Dave Scott, uh, I- I'll say. Um, uh, I mean, I'm, let's, to be clear, I'm neither one of these guys. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. No, absolutely. That's... <laughs> but, but, um, you know, I, I definitely have, um, like there's some kind of force in me that I can't control. <laughs> I mean, it's why, you know, I started running when I was 11, like, you know, I'm, I'll be 50 next year. And there's just this fire. And it's part of the reason I did that virtual runner madness. I mean, virtual uh, marathon madness. It's like that the whole thing made sense to me. And it, like, I didn't have to force myself to do it. Like it, I, it, I'm more of like the hold me back kind kind of athlete. And Dave Scott was like that. I mean, it was it was like a blessing and a curse for him, right? He was like the shark who, if it stops moving for for more than a few minutes, it dies. You know, that was Dave. Like he was just wired that way. He, he came out of the womb that way. Like he could not stop moving. And of course, you know, this Iron Man didn't exist for the first twenty five years of his athletic career. And like he was sort of good at water polo, good at pool swimming, but he wasn't great at anything until this sport came along that um rewarded you know total indefatigability like the guy the last man standing was <laughs> was the winner that made him great um so i i'm a little bit like that where i just uh like i just i, I know at some point maybe i'll just i'll just decide i've had enough and and start golfing but I, i'm i'm not there yet i love th- th- i love that comparison it's funny i think about him you know, and his irregular, you know, is it the the ICC joint or um, something along those lines uh, that, you know, kind of spurs him on? I know that's that's the conjecture in the book and, you know, he's obviously supported with evidence. And I, I talk about this all the time, that with endurance athletes, that I swear that that's the number one talent, that, that if I could choose any talent, if I'm an endurance athlete, that's the one that I'm picking first. You know, the people who, no matter what they do or their passion – that they just go nonstop. I have people in my family who are like this. I have people who've been on this podcast who are like this. And one who's been on oftentimes is Sarah Bishop, who is just one of those people. And forget about like the length of your Achilles tendon, you know, the you know, your the diameter around your hips or any other your your vertical leap, any metric that you can come up with around the human body. I feel like that that capability, that inborn need to just go might be the most important talent out of all of them. Yeah. You know, one of the things that was just really, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, just in terms of like uh, on an intellectual level uh, lit me up uh, in, in this experience I had was being able to observe a fairly large group. I mean, it was a dozen members uh, of the team. Uh, Scott Smith was a part-timer um so he was split time between la and flagstaff but there were about a dozen men and women you know young elite athletes that i was around daily and so that's enough people where you can start to see yeah you see how they all have their own individual personality but you can also see what they have in common and there were you know a lot you know a lot of you know just i guess you know runners who are maybe fans of the sport they don't really appreciate how much the factors above the the neck contribute to being able to reach that level. But I, I just, I always feel like 
people give it lip service. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, the head's important. No, it really is. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, all, with with one and a half exceptions, the members of this team were not the top high school runners in the country. They were not the top college runners in the country. And yet they were the best pros uh, because, you know, they had enough physical talent, but they had those above the neck factors that that's what allowed them to stay in the game and keep rising, rising, rising slowly. While the people who had all the talent, but didn't have their SHIT together or whatever, you know, there were some ingredients lacking in, in the psychological makeup that, yeah, they could crush it when they were 17, 21 or whatever. And talent was, was enough, but, but yeah, I mean, these folks definitely, there were certain qualities that, and, and you know, I talked with Ben Rosario about this while I was there, about how he does his recruiting. And he looks for that stuff because he knows it. You know, he's, he, he lives in this world. He knows how much the, the, the head matters. Yeah. And like you said, everyone pays lip service to it. And I talked to Ben about that exact same topic about a year ago of like, yeah, you look for it. But, you know, as a former college basketball coach, how do you look for it? <laughs> like, I'm, I've done the same thing. And it's like, you almost only find it if you already have engaged them in so many deep conversations or analysis that, that, that you finally get there. But the only way to get there is if you were already interested in them in the first place. Like, it's not something that necessarily jumps off the page to you unless you're already ingrained in their life or unless you have, like, the best recommendation ever from someone who's been a part of your life for a long time. Yeah, that's very astute because that's actually how it works. I mean, you might think that, well, it's pro sports. It's completely different from any other business. Well, not really. It's, it's actually very relationship driven or that's what I saw. And so that's exactly how Scott Fobble ended up on the team. It was he got a personal recommendation from someone he already knew and trusted. So that recommendation that you know that served as a proxy to for the experience with Scott that Ben didn't yet have. Um and that's kind of how it works. Like Eric Fernandez who was on the team um and had retired shortly before I got there, but he he was recruited to serve as my pacer for, for some, for some workouts. Like he's from St. Louis, Ben Rosario is from St. Louis. Like, so Ben had had his eye on Eric since Eric was a kid. Uh, so there's a certain amount of that involved. Exactly. Because I mean, I mean, you know, yeah, you can, you can interview someone and they're on their best behavior and you get, you think you have a sense of them and then you're just wrong. So you really need more to go on than that. And it matters a lot. You know, there are only so many of these slots open, you know, for, for people to join the team and they're precious. You know, you don't want to waste someone on someone who's not really going to contribute to the team as, you know, as a team member that, that matters a ton for the chemistry. The whole thing could fall apart, you know, with just, you know, one or, you know, two people who are, are kind of toxic. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, uh, but that's exactly what Ben is really good at. You know, he, he, he has said, you know, I'm not the guy who knows all the, you know, as much science maybe as some other coaches. Like, um, you know, he, he has, he's, he has humility about what he's good at and what he's uh, not so good at. And, and, you know, the, recruitment, you know, chemistry, culture building, those are the things he does really well. And you see it like how much that stuff matters in the results he's producing. Again, with, with a team of athletes who were not by and large winning national championships in high school. And you've written about this concept plenty of times in blog posts, articles, and books, but just the power that can be, that can come from working as a group in training uh, and even on race day and you got to witness this and be a part of it there. So if you were, uh, or maybe you've even done this, you know, once, once you left Flagstaff and if you're going to, you know, you're talking to now, you know, thousands of people who are listening to this show who maybe want to create their own kind of version of that, um, that group, that group mechanism where not only is it beneficial for them, but they're 
they're helping others as well. And there's this natural um, give and take and everyone gets elevated by being a part of that group. What elements are important, not only from a group's perspective, but from an individual's perspective? Yeah, man, another great question. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm, I kind of skew introvert, you know, so I would never be, I would never be able to do to create what Ben Rosario has created, to, like to duplicate that. Um, but what, how, how I viewed my role to an extent, because, you know, again, I was, you know, while I was there with NAZ Elite, yeah, I was the old slow guy, but, you know, I was there every day, like, you know, and, and, and they saw me keep showing up and keep putting everything I had into it. And they saw how much enthusiasm I had for it, just how grateful I was, you know, to be there and have the, have the experience. Um, so I, I was, you know, by the end of it, definitely, I felt, you know, accepted and, and taken seriously as, you know, kind of one of the gang, a little different, but one of the gang. And, I viewed my role on the team as it, not so much um, like any type of leadership role or anything like that, but I, I just wanted to be a net positive, like a, a contributor in the ways I could contribute. And, um, you know, I couldn't do much in any kind of real practical way. Like all the practical stuff was mostly the team members giving to me. It was, it was funny because, you know, I was, you know, a decade or more older, I mean, shoot, 12 years older than the oldest real member of the team, um, old enough to be the, you know, the father of <laughs> one or two, two members of the team, but they were, they were, they were taking me under their wing. But the way I tried to contribute was just through my enthusiasm, just, you know, enthusiasm is my absolute favorite quality. It's like, you know, if, if i fall in love with a person like all my friendships are made with um you know people who just have a spark who have a fire and often they're they're good at things that i'm i, I may have no particular interest in but what i just find that spark so attractive and um i guess you know of I've, I've got a lot of qualities in myself that i don't like but but i am an enthusiastic person and you know i was living a fantasy and doing something i loved and i i, I wanted to just Every time I showed up to a group run, I wanted the energy level in the room to, or not the room, but the, in the, uh, on the trail to increase, you know, because I was there. That's really all I, I could offer. And that's something that everyone can do. You know, not everyone, everyone's got their own personality. I mean, you have whatever it is you have to offer. You've got something. And so that's a way to look at it. It's not necessarily all on you to, you know, to create the team or build the culture you know, that is a role for some people, but what everyone can do is, is what I try to do when I, when I was with the team, it's like, uh, you know, how, how can I be a net positive? Like everyone has a, a, a role to play and you can't force something to come out of you that that's not in you to give. So just think about like, what, what is my thing? Like, what's my piece? Uh, and just let that be enough. And if you do it authentically, it, it, it will be enough. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're one of the most knowledgeable people in the running world. I've gained so much from reading your books, your articles, your blog posts, and for talking to you on occasion as well. If someone wants to, obviously, everyone knows where to buy books. We don't have to dive into that. But if people want to learn more about your coaching or some of your, your blog posts and writings, where can they go? Yeah, so uh, my personal website is mattfitzgerald.org. That's kind of the hub. Uh, and then my online uh coaching training business is called 8020 Endurance, and you can find that at 8020endurance.com. I can't recommend it strongly enough. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me back. I really enjoyed talking to you. Matt, thank you for coming on this show. Really appreciate it. Also, big ups to our sponsors, Four Sigmatic and Prevenex. These are two health food companies uh, that I just love so much. I shouldn't say that Prevenex is a health food company, but they do have foods, they do have powders, and the supplements that I know and love and try every single day. Uh, I've been using their their um, vegan-based uh, protein powder 
as an afternoon snack as well. And that's been going really well. I love that stuff. And Four Sigmatic, man. Holy cow. I love their coffee, uh, the Lions made with chaga. I also use their teas as well. Uh, they also have their own protein powder. Uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful company. I love both these companies so much. So go check them out. Um, I have some exciting news to share with everybody. We're going to be talking about it later in the week, but just keep your eyes peeled on Thursday or ears peeled. I should say you're listening to a podcast. You're not reading this um, on Thursday. We got my monthly episode with Allie Feller. So this, this month it's on my, my podcast feed. So ramblings on the run with Matt and Allie last month. I was on her feed this month. She's on my feed. Can't wait for that. And then just a bevy of great guests after that. So uh, thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.